You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson-Lees. Josh McKenzie was born and raised in the Blue Mountains and immersed himself into sport and the great outdoors from a young age. In an ironic turn, Josh uncovered rock climbing when he moved out of the Blue Mountains nearly a decade ago, starting his new hobby at a local climbing gym. Josh has embraced travel and unconventional adventure, continuing to discover different cultures, cycling through Europe and exploring more climbing spots around the world. A qualified electrician, Josh has balanced his full-time work as a machinery engineer with his love for climbing and has found the key to that lifestyle in prioritisation. Josh joins us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Josh, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thanks, Jono. Pleasure to be here. Josh, you grew up in Springwood in the Blue Mountains. What was your childhood like? Um, yeah, look, very, very uh, relaxed childhood, I would say. Um, basically, yeah, grew up in a house, backed onto bush, spent the first years of my life chasing lizards and going on bushwalks just literally over the back fence. Um, yeah, very, very good place to grow up, good access to sports and that kind of thing. So, And with two younger brothers, um, was there an element of uh, freedom and adventure that took up your childhood? Absolutely. I think uh, having the two younger brothers actually made that even easier. Uh, we weren't a really tight-knit family where the brothers would spend a whole lot of time together. But what it did mean was that, you know, the parents were too busy paying attention to one kid who's having a tantrum or something like that. So the rest of us could just sneak off while no one's watching, you know? <laughs> so, um, but no, honestly, they were very encouraging of a life into the outdoors. Um, all of our family holidays and that kind of thing when we were growing up was camping trips, four-wheel driving trips, you know, um, almost the starting point for our holidays when we were kids was like you'd hit Broken Hill, you know, and then you would go to a place you haven't been before. So, uh, yeah, it was it was very much spent in the outdoors and encouraged to do so. Do you think that sense of ex- exploration is something we're maybe losing in society, especially the young generation coming through? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I think we're... S- Moving towards a world that's just, it's so easily accessible on the internet. You know, you've, you've seen the outback, you've seen the oceans, you've seen all these things that, you know, I think a lot of people are definitely going to struggle to break away from just looking at these things from behind a screen rather than going and seeking them out for themselves. For you, Josh, how did school kind of shape who you are? You know, sports, outdoors, socialisation, what impact did school have on you? <laughs> uh, school for me was pretty much just a big social event <laughs> um, yeah I've, I've definitely always been a people person I've always been a social person um, I didn't put a huge amount of emphasis on academia to the degree that I probably should have <laughs> uh, like I've fumbled my way through but um, that's not to say I did badly like for the amount of effort I put into school, I did really, really well. But the amount of effort was minimal, to say the least. Um, but, you know, I spent um, as many school days as I could participating in as many different sporting activities. And uh, basically the things that interested me. Um, school for me was basically a good sample pack of things that I might want to spend more time doing, whether that be sports or, um, you know, career-based things. Was that your mentality, just to, to throw yourself into different things, to just to learn, to gain experiences from whatever you were doing? I think on a subconscious level, yes. Um, at the time, I don't think there was a whole lot of thought put into it at all, outside of, hey, that sounds cool, let's go and give that a try. Um you know, following along with whatever friends were doing and that kind of thing. It was like, oh, you're going to try that sport? Yeah, cool, I'll come play that sport. Like, that sounds like time away from class. Like, brilliant. Um, but I think, 
yeah, it, it has definitely turned out to be that way. It's as I look back, it's very much it's very much put me in a position where I have had a lot of experience in well, a small amount of experience in a lot of different things from school years and those those more formative years. Was there a particular sport or activity that really drew your attention and had your interest? Well, through school years, um, I played a lot of rugby, a lot of soccer, a lot of water polo. Um, those more, not that water polo is conventional. <laughs> it was at our uh, school. It was very well, popular. That's true. It was popular at our school for whatever reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, those, those more conventional sports were always, you know, they were accessible. They were right there. The teachers encouraged you to be spending time playing those sports. And, you know, I, I guess I was pretty fortunate in that while never being excellent at any one sport, I was always kind of advanced intermediate <laughs> at all of them. You know, I was like, I was always just above average at most sports. So, you know, I, I could participate relatively well in whatever was offered to me. So, but I would say rugby and water polo were the ones that I pursued uh, the most. And going through school, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Because I think at that age, especially the back end of high school, it's kind of drilled into you that whatever decision you make now is going to shape your life. Mm. Were, were you set on that or were you pretty open-minded about where you wanted to take your, your career? Honestly, at the time, I was, um, I was pretty set on what I was going to do. Um, Though that did change during those school years, you know, when I was probably 15, 16, I was, I was going to be an engineer, you know, that, and coming out of year 10, whenever it is that you choose all your own subjects, I basically chose all of my subjects geared towards going to uni, going down that path. And then pretty much six months in to those subjects, I was like, you know what, not that I was struggling with the subject, but just the the amount of dedication to then going into further education just didn't seem like the right path for me at the time. So basically I turned around, chucked it all in, changed all of my difficult subjects for fun subjects, you know, spent more time playing sport and um, yeah, basically decided that I was going to go into the trades. Um, it just seemed more interesting to me at the time. And Josh, you are an, an electrician by trade mm. and a machinery engineer. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your work these days involves. Yeah, so after throwing in all of those difficult subjects, I, uh, like I said, decided I was going to go down the trade path. Decided that if I was going to do a trade, I'd been told that being an electrician was you know, the most difficult uh, theoretically. So that was the one that I decided that I was going to pursue, which I did. Um, basically furthered that education as well. Did um, control systems engineering on top of that, plus a handful of other things. So basically I've ended up in a position, I work for a company where we do, it's basically, it's really hard to explain actually. <laughs> Um, so it's basically specialist services to air conditioning contractors, plumbing contractors, and general heavy industry. So basically, any client could come to us and say, hey, we've got this machine that's not working, or it's not doing quite what we want it to do. Can we design an upgrade for this? And basically, can we turn this machine into a new machine that's going to do this, that, or the other? So essentially, yeah, we mechanically, we build machines, we write computer programs, we, yeah, it's, it's an interesting job that really keeps me inspired because of the amount of variety that I get. Um, you know, any given day, I could be an electrician, a plumber, a uh, coder uh, yeah so really really interesting stuff and you thrive on the variety you mentioned is that something that um and we'll, we'll touch on it a bit later but you like a bit of variety in your day in your weeks as well i do i really struggle with 
monotony. Um, even from a job standpoint, I've worked in jobs before, even in the same kind of industry that I'm in now, where I'd go to the same place every day. And even that kind of got a bit too much for me, a bit too stagnant. So, you know, for me now, I'm pretty much at a different site every day, seeing different clients, working for different businesses, uh, different challenges every day. And for me, keeping it fresh like that is really important. You referenced um, in an earlier chat that there was a lot of hard work you put into those early years of your career, mm-hmm. you know, up at 4.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. finishing late at night, but that's enabled you kind of the freedom and the flexibility now. Is that something you look back, I guess, proudly on and say, you know what, all those extra hours, all that, I guess, grinding was worth it to get where you are now? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And yeah, look, to elaborate on that, it was um, basically whilst I was an apprentice doing my electrician's apprenticeship, um, there was still that part of me, that voice in the back of my head that was kind of saying like engineering, engineering, like that's, that's where you're supposed to be. So, <laughs> um, so I actually did my control systems engineering. Well, that's, so it's called, it's an advanced diploma of industrial electronics and control systems engineering. So basically long title, but, um, essentially I completed that at the same time that I was doing my apprenticeship. So I would get up at yeah 4.30 in the morning, leave the house by 5 so I could be at work in the city by 6.30. I'd work my 8 or 10 hour day. I'd leave the city. I would stop at Mount Druitt TAFE on the way back. I'd do my 4 hour class in the nighttime, And then I'd be home by 10 or 11. And I would do that 4 days a week. And the 5th day was still work. It just didn't have... Uh, the TAFE tacked on at the end of it. They didn't run on Friday nights. But yeah, so that was my busy schedule. Probably the busiest I've ever been, I think. Um, Did you enjoy the busyness or was it a bit too much? Uh, I think I enjoyed it because I didn't really have a whole lot else going on. Um, I can be a bit single-minded at times. And at that time that was very much what it was. You know, it was a means to an end and I wanted to get it done as quickly as I could. Um, I probably didn't take as much in uh, from my classroom time as what I would have liked because, you know, I was just so tired all the time. But, you know, I, I survived it. I got through it. And it's kind of, it has very much got me to the point that I'm at now. So... Whilst it's not a path that I would recommend to anybody because, to be fair, it was not enjoyable in any way, shape or form, um, it very much got me where I wanted to be. So, for myself, I wouldn't change it. It's interesting you, you talk about you wouldn't recommend it for anyone else. I had a question around, you know, is that the advice you have for youngsters? Because I, 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 the story you tell, I think, really resonates in terms of you realise what needed to be done. You, you realise that you need to roll your sleeves up for X amount of years mm. to kind of open up more possibilities. Do you think there is value in kind of that advice for younger people coming through that actually you do need to, for a couple of years, really stick it out and really grind it to reap the benefits long term? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, you know, if we were to use my scenario as somewhat of a template, the changes I would make if I were going to recommend a similar path to anybody else would be, you know, don't try and do the four nights a week at TAFE, that kind of thing. Um, you know, spread it out a little more. Let it take a little bit longer and, you know, do two nights a week. You know, give yourself some rest. Let yourself actually learn a bit more from those subjects be able to soak a bit more in. I was just trying to pile in far too much information on an unrested brain, basically. (laughs) So, you know, give yourself that little bit of extra rest, give yourself that little bit of extra time to actually soak that information up and you will be better off for it. Do you look back and kind of think, oh, I could have better used that time even socially or resting? Or again, are you, in hindsight, pretty thankful that you did put in the hours? Um, I would say, honestly, I would have kept it the same for myself because I've always been the person to burn the candle at both ends. So, you know, on top of that, I still managed to find time 
on my weekends to do a lot of my socializing. Um, you know, Friday night was still free, so I could go and see friends Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, etc., etc., etc. I was still managing to play sport on the weekend. I was playing um, for Springwood Soccer Club on Sundays, playing in one of the all-age comps with my dad and with my brothers. So, you know, that was fun. Playing with, like, a handful of young guys and a handful of older guys as well. Like, that was always a riot. Um, but, yeah, no, for me, I would have kept it the same. But um, if you're not the kind of person who wants to be operating at 100% all of the time, like, if you are the kind of person who likes to actually have a chance to sit down, watch a movie, read a book, that kind of thing, do it differently. <laughs> and do you think you learned that ethic, the work ethic, from parents, friends, peers, or do you think that's just how you are as a person, really determined and driven? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's part nature, part nurture. Um, you know, we grew up in a family where... We weren't necessarily struggling for money, but we also didn't have a surplus. You know, so if we wanted something as kids, we had to give something in return, you know. So whether that was going and mowing the lawn for our two dollars or whatever, you know. So um, basically it was instilled in us to have a good work ethic from day dot. And, you know, at, at 10, I'd be walking up and down the street with like, a bucket and a sponge trying to wash people's cars for three dollars or something like that you know so um no i i think it, a part of it is definitely that's just my personality and i think the other part is definitely you know being filtered down from parents who have who have pushed that This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Josh, you're a rock climber and you first started climbing uh, nine years ago, ironically, when you moved to the city out of the Blue Mountains. How did you first uh, come across rock climbing? So I'd moved out of the city. I was living in, sorry, out of the mountains and I was living in Newtown in Sydney, nice and busy, right in the middle of it all. And one of my friends from the mountains who had done a little bit of climbing basically just said, oh, there's a climbing gym just down the road. Do you want to go and trial it out? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, that sounds like something a little different. I'm not currently at work, so I need to be doing something. Like, let's go. So sure enough, we went along, had a great time. Um, pretty quickly, it, pretty quickly, I realized that this was going to be something that was going to be all-consuming for me. Was there something that triggered that? What, like what hooked you early on? It's, it's an interesting thing, climbing, where it's a physical and a mental challenge with a very tangible return on your time in as far as getting better. So in the standard team sport type scenario, let's say in soccer, you might be getting selected in representative teams or the like but you're not necessarily getting direct feedback into your performance like people aren't necessarily coming up and saying you did this thing really well or you did that thing really well whereas in climbing we have a grade scale right and the difficulty is whilst not always 100% accurate that grade scale is directly or directly correlates with the difficulty. So it's very easy for you to see improvements in yourself because you're working your way up through those grades as you get better and better and better. So I think with the, the physical and mental challenge plus that more tangible return, that more tangible uh, 
I don't really know how to describe that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, it, it just can become really a, addictive. And I guess you've got the immediate feedback that if you make the wrong move, you fall. Well, yeah, that's exactly right too. <laughs> Which, as you said with team sports, you don't necessarily get that. You know, in soccer, you might you might kick a bad pass, but that's still subjective. That's mm. still someone's judgment that that's a bad pass. True. Whereas in climbing, you miss a hold and you're down. Yeah, if you're hanging on the end of the rope, it's quite obvious that you've done something wrong. <laughs> and Josh, when did you first explore outdoor climbing? So I was relatively quick to move from climbing in the gyms indoors to moving outdoors. This, uh, this friend who I went along with, his name's Evan, he's also originally from the Blue Mountains. Um, he is a little older than I am and had experienced a lot more of this travel and exploratory world and that kind of thing before I had. So in a sense, he'd almost taken me under his wing and was like, you know, I'll bring you and I'll show you these things. But at the same time, I was, me being there was facilitating him being able to do that as well. So, you know, it was this great little synergy. Um, so Evan has since gotten married, had children, bought houses, kind of followed that path. And every once in a while, I still get to go out and climb with him. And that's, that's brilliant. But I definitely got a little more obsessed with climbing than what he did. Do you think maybe so, that single-mindedness came back into the climbing? Yeah, it could have. <laughs> it could have. And you mentioned, again, prior to the show, that there's a feeling of being scared. You're overcoming primal fears mm. that comes with climbing. Do you feel that it really places you in the moment? Like you cannot be thinking of anything else when you're up there Very climbing? Very much so. And is that, is that driven by fear, do you think? Again, literally, you're, whilst, you know, you got the ropes and the harnesses and stuff, there is that element of you can fall and hurt yourself. I think there's a lot that plays into the mental aspect of climbing. One is that primal fear of not even so much falling and getting hurt per se, but it is so built into our subconscious that, you know, as soon as you're at heights, your brain just switches off more or less you know that's that's all you're going to be focusing on so the climbing the the mental aspect of climbing is a really interesting one because when you are starting out that is very much going to be the the way that your mind works is you're going to be you're going to be terrified basically and as you get more and more used to that exposure and being at heights and that kind of thing and you start to trust your equipment more and more where I get to is um, basically that fear, whilst it's, it's definitely dulled, it is still there, but it can very much help you, like, it helps you get into a state of hyper-focus. You know, you are entirely focused on that next move, on your next piece of protection, on just the moment. You know, you are not focusing on anything more than what you are doing at that exact time. And you will hear a lot of people, primarily experienced climbers, not so much beginners who are still struggling with the fears, but people who have been climbing for a while, you will hear them talk about climbing being a moving meditation because you are blocking out everything else that's going on in your day-to-day -day life. You know, you're not worried about work. You're not worried about money. You're not worried about any of these things. You're purely focused on yourself and what's going on in a one-meter bubble around you. Do you think that's the lure we were speaking before the show about the rise, I guess, of outdoor adventure and, you know, how we want to see more and more of it in the mountains? Do you mm -hmm. think that's part of the lure, though, of even mountain biking to a lesser degree, that you need to be focused on what you're doing or you're probably going to crash and, you know, that comes with injuries and hurt and stuff. And same with, with whitewater rafting. You, you need to be locked in. Do you think that's the addiction, where it comes from? I think it definitely plays into it, yeah. Um, I think there are a number of things that play into those those addictions, the, the reasons why we follow these pursuits, whether it be a really great way to travel and see the world and, you know... Um, lures that come more from that path but I think that moment like you're saying that moment in time where you need to make that decision that 
you know, are you going to bail off your bike or are you going to hit this jump or, you know, all these kinds of things. It's, I think it is that, that feeling of hyper-awareness, that feeling of trying to control something when you may actually be feeling out of control. You know, it's, yeah, they're, they're all definitely contributing factors. Did you notice, Josh, a shift in your mindset once you properly got into outdoor climbing and you kind of conquered the fears? Did you notice a mindset shift outside of climbing? So at work, around people, were you more hyper aware, like it had untapped a different part of your brain almost? I think so. I think so. It's, um, I would say it's more of a, I think it's more of a confidence-based thing. And you hear a lot of people talk about it coming from martial arts and that kind of thing, you know. Um, they, they become more confident, sorry, more confident in themselves once they start to master anything, really. And if you can approach a sporting pursuit with 100% confidence, why can't you do that in your day-to-day life? So, personally, I've never really struggled too much with, you know, being able to hold a little bit of confidence, but I think at the same time, it has definitely changed some perspectives in my mind, yeah, definitely. And for us, I guess, non-climbers, do you, when you're up on the on the rock face, especially here in the beautiful Blue Mountains, do you take the time to, I guess, appreciate the picturesque areas that you are? Do you get the chance to kind of look around and soak it all up? Or again, are you so locked in that it's all kind of white noise behind you? You absolutely do. You absolutely do. It's, um, you know, whilst the exact moment while you're climbing, you're at the hardest move, you're at the scariest part, whatever it may be, at that point, you're not going to be looking around and trying to take it all in. But, you know, you've still got the approach to the climb, you walk out, you know, usually that's going to be right around sunset. You get to sit on the, like at the top of these cliff faces and get an amazing perspective on whatever landscape it is, whether it's the Blue Mountains, whether it's, you know, anywhere in the world. And you can go and get a really close up perspective of these brilliant places and you don't even have to go too far from the city. Jumping back to, I guess, when Evan first started to ta- mm-hmm. taking you out on trips, what was your climbing, I guess, frequency like? Were you getting out every weekend? Was it once a month? How often had this become part of your life? So when it all started off in the gym, Evan and I would go along once a week and then I'd try and drag him along a second time. And pretty quickly I was going, like within the first three months, I would say, I was going by myself a couple of times on top of that and honestly I just couldn't get enough once we started going outside we would go you know similar story it started slow and then just rapidly started accelerating and you build you start to build a bit of a network of people as well the climbing gyms are a great place for that because they're really social you know it's not like going to a weights gym where everyone's there just you know this guy's on the bench press, this guy's on the the treadmill and that's it. They don't talk to each other or anything like that. You know, in the climbing gym, it is a lot more of a social scene and you, you develop friendships and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's really easy to just say to someone, Hey, why don't we go out for a climb sometime? And yeah, your, your network just starts to build, which means you've got more and more people you can climb with. So for argument's sake, when Evan wouldn't be able to come out and climb with me, I'd just <laughs> call someone else. It was like, hey, how do you feel about going out on Saturday? So, um, no, relatively quickly, um, I was trying to get out every weekend, which was funny because, you know, this is not too long after having moved out of the Blue Mountains to Sydney. And at the time that I did that, I was spending all of my weekends in the city. And then there was just this rapid shift of living in the mountains, weekends in the city, to living in the city and weekends in the mountains. It was, yeah, kind of funny, but kind of annoying at the same time. (laughs) And Josh, we've spoken about that, probably for both of us, there wasn't necessarily the appreciation for what we grew up around in the Blue Mountains. Mm. We we did a bit of hiking, a bit of mountain biking. You do your, your school trips here and there. Do you think there's an opportunity 
force schools to, to further embrace that real outdoor adventure and really putting kids more outside their comfort zone? I think that would be a really great thing to see. Obviously, not being in the schooling system myself, I don't really know how it would be done in a, a safe and supervised manner. But I think with an amazing place like the Blue Mountains, in like quite literally in your backyard, I think growing up without the knowledge of all of the activities that we could have been doing and just the depth of those activities how much is right there. I think it's a real shame. Um, that's not to say that I would have, you know, obsessed over climbing when I was 15 the way that I did when I was 25, you know, but I didn't even really know that it was there until I was already a part of the community. And I think a way to be able to just open up the possibilities for kids would be really, really good. What do you think you'd be doing if climbing hadn't become part of your life? Do you, think, do you think you would have fallen into that kind of monotonous trap you referred to earlier? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. So before before I went along to the climbing gyms, I would just work. It's all I knew. I went to work and if I had nothing else going on, if I didn't have any friends who I was due to catch up with that evening, my mindset was well, I may as well just stay at work as long as I can. You know, at that point, at least I'm getting paid rather than just sitting at home. So because I didn't really have a whole lot else going on, that was it for me. So yeah, I, I definitely have to thank Evan and thank Climbing for dragging me away from that. You know, not to say that there's anything wrong with living your life that way. I just think <clears throat> that it's, I think it's really important that people know that there are other other options out there you know you don't necessarily just have to live for the weekend you don't necessarily just have to go to work because that's all you know you know and that that was very much my part and what do you think climbing has taught you as a person you know if there's one key thing that you've taken out of it what would what would that be um it's definitely passion based you know, I, I would definitely struggle to put words to it exactly, but what it has taught me is I really appreciate being around people who have passion for something. You know, I'm more than happy meeting anyone, you know, like whatever the scenario, but when I meet people, I really want to be able to feel a sense of passion about whatever it is that you're interested in. Like, even if I have no idea what it is you're talking about. If I have no interest in that topic at all, I would love to sit and hear you, whoever you are, talk for half an hour about whatever it is that you're passionate about. You know, it could be diving, it could be surfing, it could be, I don't know, flying, who knows? But, you know, I get on really well with the people who are driven and passionate for just about anything. And I think that's a really important trait to have. And Josh, who have you idolised in the climbing world, either locally or, or globally? Has there been a particular person that you've, you've followed closely and you've, I guess, wanted to be like in a climbing sense? Um, I, so I've always been... Always. I've, I've been a big consumer of climbing media because it has been such a big part of my life. I wouldn't say that there's specifically one or two people who I would try to emulate. Um, but I definitely, I like to think that I pay attention to, you know, not, not just the biggest names, but the people who are, you know, up and coming or just doing cool things. I think people who are just really getting after it are really, really cool. You know, there's, Obviously, there's, like, Tom O'Halloran, who you had on the show not that long ago. Um, like, he's doing amazing things as far as Australian climbing goes. Like, he's, you know, top tier as far as Australian climbers go. We've got guys who are, like, guys and girls, of course, who are going to the Olympics, like, doing all these amazing things. And, yeah, it, you, you really don't have to look far 
in the climbing community, despite the fact that the Australian climbing community is so small, you really don't have to look far to find inspiring people. I listened to an interview where Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, was talking about how video games and TV were the best thing for skateboarding, but it actually initially got a lot of pushback because people felt like they were losing, I guess, that uh, inner sanctum of skateboarding. And then recently we've seen the rise of, you know, Tommy Caldwell and and Alex Honnold on these kind of big feature films and documentaries. Is there a sense within the climbing circles that that's bad for the sport or do people see that as a positive that more people can experience it? It depends who you talk to, for sure. You know, there's there's kind of the older gen... It's not even the older generation because that's too much of a blanket statement. But there is definitely a group of people who want the climbing community to stay small. You know, they, they want it to be like, this is our thing. You know, this is our thing. You guys get away from it. <laughs> um, but no, for the most part, I think everyone is pretty happy with the fact that it is getting a bit more mainstream focus. You know, the fact that it's moving into the Olympics, the fact that more and more climbing gyms are opening, like the numbers of people going into the climbing gyms are skyrocketing. That doesn't necessarily, you know, a lot of the pushback that's coming from that revolves around, um, you know, environmental impact. Like if we've got an increase of 200% of people coming into the climbing gyms, that means we're going to have 200% more people like eroding the hiking trails and like all this kind of thing. But that's, it's just not the reality. You know, there will be a percentage of those people who come from the climbing gyms and start climbing up outside and going adventuring and whatever else. But no, I think for the most part, it's a really good thing. It's, it's a world that has definitely changed my life. It's shaped my life to where it is now. And the more people who have access to that and can experience something that I consider to be so special and so amazing, then brilliant, brilliant. If there's more people who can, who can experience that, what's the fault? And is there a favourite local climb for you, Josh, a place that you love going back to, or even a project that you've been working on tirelessly? Honestly, no. So I would say of, I mean, not knowing him personally, but to make reference to Tom, who you've had on the show, I would say he and I are drastically different climbers. So he, to my understanding, and... Tom, get in touch. Let me know if I'm entirely wrong here. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when you're climbing these extremely difficult grades, you know, so for reference, Tom has climbed the hardest grades in the country. So the the hardest climbs that we have in Australia right now is grade 35. And Tom has done that, like incredible feat. But the only way that you can climb these really incredibly high difficulty climbs is basically this sequence that we call projecting you know so you go and you try the moves and you try and you try and you try and you try and it's like perfecting the choreography of a really difficult dance and Tom can do that I on the other hand (laughs) I cannot I I don't know if it's um if it's a struggle with the monotony that we were talking about earlier, I don't quite know what it is that makes my mind not work that way, but I don't have the patience for it. I, um, every once in a while, I'll find one particular climb that I will happily put a bit of time into. But for me, I'll try something one or two times. And if I can't do it or yeah, if I can't finish it properly in one or two times, I want to go and try something new. So I don't really have these projects that I'll obsess over that I'll spend a whole lot of time on. I'll, um, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a, I want to try everything than a, I want to be the absolute best I can be. And was there, or has there been a particular climb that you've sent it and you've got to the top and been like, that was incredible. Is there one that really stands out for you? 
like, oh. likely, I should say, <laughs> within the Blue Mountains. <laughs> within the Blue Mountains. Um, there, I mean, there have been a number, but for me, the the climbs that stick in my mind the most are the ones with the full depth of experience. You know, it's it's not purely difficulty. I want to be, I want to feel like I'm adventuring. I want to feel scared. I want to feel like I'm trying hard. You know, like the the ones that really stick in my mind are the ones that kind of have that full gamut. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Josh, you're a natural adventurer. Um, you spent many years travelling the world. What has travel um, taught you and, and how has that helped you grow personally? I think travel is an extremely important thing that everybody should at least dabble in. You know, I'm not about to tell everyone that they should go and, you know, live out of a van for three years, right? But, um, you know, just as far as tolerance to different cultures, like all of these kinds of things, like go and experience ways that different people live. Um, I think that's, that's a really important thing to me. And I think it, I think the world would genuinely be a better place if everybody did the same. You know, you don't have to go and travel to a third world country or anything like that. You don't have to, you don't have to take your tourism dollars to somewhere who needs it, you know, but just go and experience a different way of living for a little while, even if it's a couple of weeks. I think if you can really experience a different culture for a little while, and I don't mean being in a place who has a different culture and trying to force them to, you know, act Australian. Like, I I think that's counterproductive, but if you can go to these places and really feel some kind of connection to the people there, you will walk away a better person having done it. And putting aside the current state of the world, Mm -hmm. do you feel like travel will be a part of your life for, for as long as you're around? I think so. I think so. Um, So, yeah, just to timestamp this a little, like we're currently, fortunately in Australia, we're coming out the end of pandemic lockdowns and whatever else. Um, Poor Melbourne. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, look, I was actually supposed to be away. I was supposed to be going away, like, pretty much next week. Um, I was supposed to be going on a climbing trip into... Pakistan um but obviously that's not happening so (laughs) um so theoretically that'll get moved back until next year and then there'll be you know I've got so many destinations that I want to go and climb see experience that like that that list already like if I don't add anything to it is going to take me 10 years so (laughs) what's at the top of the list um at the top of the list the UK has actually landed really highly on my list of places to go, um, which is an interesting one because as far as climbing goes, the UK is known for one thing really, which is not necessarily having big, tall climbs, but they have particularly scary climbs, particularly dangerous climbs, which just tickles a part of my interest. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I really want to go over there and spend a bit of time and check that out. Um, But South Africa is also registered really highly. Like, um, having the climbing, the ocean, the cities, like, right next door to Cape Town. Like, everything's so accessible. It looks incredible. You know, one day you can go surfing or swimming with seals. And the next day you can just be going adventure climbing, like, right there. You don't have to go. You don't have to spend too much time. It just, it seems like... A brilliant place. Is that important to you when you go to a destination that, if you can, you can climb, but it's also about immersing yourself into other activities that that are on offer? 
Definitely. So everywhere that I've ever traveled for climbing, you know, if somebody asks me, what's your favorite place that you've ever climbed? It always comes down to three factors for me that I have to take into account, which are the quality of the climbing, the scenery, the location that you're in, and the community. And if I can find a place that has all three of those things, I'll be happy. Like if you can put good climbing, good people and beautiful scenery in the same place, I'm there. And you mentioned before the show, Josh, that Moab in Utah was one of your favorite places that you've Mm -hmm. ever traveled. Why, why does that stand out so much for you? For exactly those reasons. (laughs) Good segue. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so Moab in Utah would be, I think it's one of the most special places. Um, If you've ever seen photos or videos of that landscape, the Utah desert, you've got the big red sandstone towers, like just freestanding towers in the middle of nothing. The river runs through town. Like it's, it's just a really surreal place to spend time. The climbing on those sandstone towers is equal parts impressive and terrifying, which, um, which is kind of what I'm all about. And the people who flock there to climb on these things are, you know, it's such a diverse group of people, like so many different personality types, so many different, um, ability levels, you know, you can go and climb these things if you're comparatively inexperienced, you know, you, you have to know your safety systems and whatever else. I'm not going to condone first time climbers going out and trying to climb these things because they are in depth and they can be dangerous and whatever else, but you don't have to be the best climber in the world to go and climb on these big desert towers and they're just to be able to stand on the top of one of those you know it might be barely big enough for you to lay down on top of and the only way to get up there is climbing you get to feel like a proper adventurer you get to feel like you're exploring and that's pretty cool to me it sounds like proper adventuring to me (laughs) (laughs) where where else has stood out to you around the world Josh, you know, you mentioned you had a trip lined up to Pakistan, South Africa. Are there other areas, climbing or non-climbing, that you absolutely want to get to at some point? A lot of the places I want to go are actually return visits. So I've never been to South Africa and I haven't been to the UK. I think that's why they register so highly for me. I'd really like to do Japan for the same reason. Um... Honestly, I want to do a lot of return visits to Europe. Um, So a lot of countries around Europe. I traveled Europe five or six years ago. um, So I did it by bicycle, (laughs) which I wouldn't recommend and I wouldn't do again. (laughs) Um, But no, I would like to go back to uh, a lot of those European countries specifically for climbing. Whilst I did get a chance to do a lot of climbing while I was over there, you know, I did a bit in France, I did quite a lot in Italy. I would like to do it again with a little more focus on the climbing side as opposed to the just general bike riding side. <laughs> um, I will. I don't think I'll ever be able to tick off Canada and the US for climbing. You know, they've, they've just got so much over there. You know, I've, I've pretty much spent, I would say collectively, I've probably spent three to three and a half years over there. And I, I wouldn't be able to say that I've finished or that I've done as much climbing in any area over there that I would like to. So, yeah, Canada and the US will always register as being on that list as well. Um Honestly, the, the list just gets longer. Like, I never manage to tick off a destination and say, yeah, cool, that part's done. Like, <laughs> on to the next. It's, it's always, okay, yeah, cool, well, I'll come back here in a few years' time, but until then, you know, I've got these other places. Do you face both internal and external pressures to, and I'll use inverted commas here, settle down mm. to go back to your kind of 9 till 5 or 4.30 till 
11. <laughs> well, do, do you face that pressure from either people or from yourself to kind of hit pause and get back to what some would refer to as normality? Um, I definitely did in the earlier years of kind of traveling, climbing, that kind of thing, like moving away from normality, as you say. Um, not so much in recent years, I think, because I've been doing it for quite a while. I think everybody who I talk to is just used to the fact that that's what I do. <laughs> um, honestly, for myself, yes. So, I don't know, I, I guess it's like, all of my friends are getting to that point where they're getting married, having kids, like, doing all that kind of stuff, and a part of me is like, oh... Maybe I should do that. And then another part is just like, eh, nah. <laughs> like, come back to it later. <laughs> we'll reassess in a couple more years. And you'd mentioned prior to the show, Josh, that a challenge for you is feeling settled and comfortable in one place and you always seem to be drawn elsewhere. Is it climbing and travel that helps you overcome and mitigate that? Or are you just aware that you don't want to let yourself get stagnant? I think it's just that... Um that search for balance is really what drives me. Is like, as I said previously, I can become quite single-minded. So for me, what works best is I can be single-minded in my career, for argument's sake, for a few months. Like, granted, I'll still go climbing on the weekends, but I can very much work my way through six months, 12 months, however long it happens to be, before I start to feel like the itch, right? The itch to leave again. And, you know, I, I find the same thing if I'm climbing full time, you know, if I'm not working and I'm just adventuring after a while, I get to a point where I'm like, okay, no, I need some structure. I need some routine. I need to actually get back and contribute to society a little more for a while. So yeah, for me, it's just about finding balance and the best way that works for me is to be able to do, you know, a long stint of this and then a long stint of that. And Josh, do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves? And what I mean by that is, do you feel that uh, the path is laid out for us or that every decision we make in life helps shape where we end up? Yeah, very much the latter. Very much the latter. I think... I think we're constantly faced with little forks in that road, right? And you can choose whichever path you want, whether it be, what was that old poem? Like the path less traveled, right? So (laughs) it's very much that. Like if you're at one of those forks in the road, do you want to take the path where you're pretty sure you know what the outcome will be or will you choose the other? And you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with taking either of those decisions. Like sometimes a little bit of comfortability is definitely a nice thing. But at the same time, you know, being able to get out of your comfort zone isn't bad either. I think that's a very important point you make there that often in life decisions aren't a zero-sum game. You know, mm. it's not a binary yes or no. It's more like, okay, that one's going to get me 60%. That one's going to get me 40%. I need to make a decision. Sure. Whereas I think we've probably become accustomed to thinking that it is ultimatum, that everything we decide on is an ultimatum. Do you, do you consider decisions a bit more open-ended, that they, you still can have a win, I guess, either way you go? Yeah, I do. I do. I think... I don't think there's ever... I mean, that's an overstatement. <laughs> like, there's definitely some decisions <laughs> to be made that you know will get you somewhere that you definitely don't want to be. But in my life, I think I'm a pretty adaptable person, and I think... Any decision I make, whether the result from that is positive or negative, I think I'll be able to find a way to adapt to whatever that situation brings. And, you know, it may not be instantaneous, but eventually it will probably end up being something somewhat positive. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) And have you taken the time to reflect on what has been a pretty amazing 10 years or so, whether it's, you know, all those hours that went into the work and the the extra qualifications to the travel, to the climbing, do you stop and reflect or are you more looking ahead to what's coming? Oh, I I don't think I'm even looking ahead to what's coming. I think 
you know, I think I'm kind of just like very much a I'm living it in the now type person. <clears throat> Every once in a while, you know, I will have a conversation like you and I are having now where I do get a chance to actually think back and say, like, oh, wow, I have actually done quite a lot and a lot of like pretty cool stuff as well. But um, yeah, as far as looking ahead, I mean, with the, the times of the world right now, it's really hard to look ahead. It's hard to be doing any planning or anything like that because there's just kind of no certainty into what we're looking forward towards. Um, but yeah, look, I, I just kind of, like I said, live in the now, kind of try and make the most of the week that I'm looking at. And <laughs> so uh, where can I squeeze everything into this week? And yeah, just kind of go along like that. And how have your priorities shifted in say the past five years? You know, do you value things differently now that you did back then? I don't think over the last five years they've changed too much. I think, you know, I, I've always valued um, my career. I've always valued um, hard work, I think would be the right way to, to look at that. Um, and I've also valued being able to step away from that. So I don't think my priorities have shifted overall. I think they definitely change on a week-by-week -week basis. <laughs> you know, depending on how uh, how your work week's going, it's like, oh, no, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to go adventuring again. But, you know, obviously the, uh, the smart brain in there kind of tells you otherwise. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would say overall my priorities are somewhat the same. And Josh, what advice would you have for, for other people who... Maybe they're doing the nine till five, but they know they've got a passion or a hobby that they really want to chase. Like, what's what's even the first step to, to doing that? Because as you said, climbing for you has had a fundamental shift in, in who you are as a person. And whether it's outdoor adventure or reading or playing a, an instrument, how do people do that? How do they build that balance into their life? Oh, I am not the person to ask about balance. <laughs> Basically, so my life as it is, is I'll try and squeeze as much in and the only thing that ever gets sacrificed in the pursuit for the correct balance is sleep. So <laughs> that, that seems like the least important thing on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> Which, so one of my friends actually sent me a, a podcast episode a while ago that was really, really interesting podcast. It was, I don't know if you know the Joe Rogan show, mm -hmm. um, but it was one that he put on with a neuroscientist who has written books into, you know, sleep studies and whatever else. And it was so a really interesting statistic that came away from that. So I, I myself, I probably average like six hours a night, right? <clears throat> and a point that this guy brought up was the amount of people on earth who they have studied, and they, they did a study with like thousands of people, who can have six and a half hours sleep per night with zero detrimental effect to cognitive ability, if rounded to the nearest number and expressed as a percentage, is zero. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so for me, that was basically like either, okay, either I'm like a real anomaly or I'm actually smarter than I thought. <laughs> um but yeah, look, as far as trying to find a balance of all of these things, it's, it's just about prioritizing, you know, like, yeah, if you're getting stuck at work 12 hours a day, it's going to be really hard to squeeze anything else in. But if you have the ability to prioritize outside of work hours, whether it be reading, whether it be going to a climbing gym, whatever it happens to be. Just prioritize what, what you need to do for yourself. Like whatever you need for your mental health, your physical health. Like at the end of the day, the only thing that you can't throw money at to solve as a problem is your health. So, you know, my one piece of advice was, would be don't overexert yourself to a point that it's detrimental to your health. But... Yeah, just, just trying to find that balance. And do you think for, 
again, for people looking to kind of kickstart something, is it important that they find another person? So in your case, it was Evan, mm. almost someone else to hold you accountable to, to what you're doing? I think so. And so this, this is actually like a big conversation in climbing right now is there, have been, I'm not sure if you've seen, but like on the news, there have been a handful of uh, emergency services, rescues and that kind of thing for climbers in the Blue Mountains recently. Granted, a lot of them, a lot of these rescues that are being touted as climbers haven't necessarily been. Um, but one of the conversations that's come from it within the climbing community has been the importance of mentorship. Um, unfortunately, I think the one detrimental effect, detrimental effect of the climbing gyms becoming so popular is people get confident in their abilities whilst in the climbing gym where you're in a controlled scenario and people then want to go climbing outdoors. They want to go and experience that, but they don't necessarily have the skill set because, you know, going climbing outdoors, it's definitely not the same as climbing in that controlled scenario. So a lot of the climbing gyms are starting to implement these transition courses, so to speak, where it's, okay, so you've got the skill set to climb in the gym. Let's, let's teach you in a classroom setting, still a controlled environment, but let's give you a bit of the information that you're going to need to be able to transition your skill set to the outdoors and to these more wild scenarios. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think that mentorship thing is very important. And... You know, from from both sides as well. You know, it's I think people who are willing to be that mentor figure are few and far between. You know, because essentially you are <clears throat> committing your time to teaching someone else. So if you're selfish with your time, you're not going to want to do that. So I think um, yeah, it's it definitely needs to be a little give and take, and there definitely needs to be more of it than what there is if we want to, you know, make climbing a bit more of a sustainable and positive thing. Have you, since your first time at the gym and then first going outdoors, have you always been aware, I guess, of the, the risk factor and, I guess, the humbling nature of, of rock climbing? Like, you're up against, you know, nature at its strongest. So you, have you always been aware of the risks you're inheriting? Honestly, no. No, I... Um, there have definitely been scenarios in my earlier climbing years where I look back at now and realize that they were legitimately dangerous. You know, I, I had definitely put myself in positions where with a little more knowledge, I would not have done the same thing. Fortunately, it, you know, went according to plan for the most part, but, um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely smarter now. <laughs> I definitely have more knowledge now than I did. And I, I think whether it be climbing or any part of life, more knowledge is never a bad thing. So if you can be out climbing or spending time with someone who is more knowledgeable in any capacity than what you are, soak up as much of that as you can while it's there. And Josh, how can people find out um, a little bit more about you know your climbing adventures? Can they follow you on social media? What's the best way to, to stay up to date? <laughs> um, so I'm like pretty bad at social medias. <laughs> I, uh, I do like, so I'm on Instagram. Um, basically my name, Josh McKenz, without the I-E, J-O-S-H-M-A-C-K-E-N-Z is where you'll find me on Instagram. I post once every month or two uh, <laughs> but on there there is actually a link to a couple of my mates run a climbing magazine that's based out of Canada uh, it's called Rock Pirates I've I actually sent them off a story for the third issue just yesterday so so far I've got stories in all three of their <laughs> issues which uh, basically my stories are always you know they, they have some really good content on there some are like really interesting trip reports with amazing climbers and, you know, professional climbers and whatever else, which I am not. Um, and then mine are basically these silly stories of like when everything has gone wrong. 
So <laughs> the fact that I've got a story in all three so far about things going wrong tell you just how often they do go wrong. <laughs> uh, but yeah, look, as, as far as my content goes, that's definitely the best place to find it. Go and have a look at the magazine. Like the stories are pretty entertaining. Um, yeah. And I know you referenced that you do like to live in the moment um, and not think too far ahead, but what does the kind of next six months hold in store for you, you know, pending COVID border restrictions and everything? Do you envisage yourself getting back out and about doing more travel? Honestly, I would like to. Um, if overseas travel becomes a reality, I was hoping to probably go and do the UK in, sorry, no, it's their summer now. Uh, South Africa. Yeah, go and do South Africa when it comes around to our summertime, when the weather's good over there. Um, but yeah, look, we will see. I think at this point, I'm very much just trying to be content with the idea that it's going to be a year or so of climbing domestically, which quite honestly is not a bad thing. As far as, you know, we, we in Australia are really fortunate. We do have a lot of brilliant climbing a lot of world-class climbing that hasn't really made it onto the global scale there's not too many people who are like oh god i really want to go down and check out the climbing in australia you know there are a select few who do absolutely but what we do have is really really good so the idea of being here for a year and just doing a bit more of that i can manage that Josh, a huge thank you for our conversation and for being a part of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Wishing you all the best. Thanks for having me on, man. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast, brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender.